Greetings, parish orphans and retrogrades. Today is one of the most solemn and important and impactful shows, episodes of Rules for Retrogrades that I think I've ever come to you with. Just five and a half days ago, on September the 16th, another letter, more or less posing dubia, challenges, at the level of the concept, has been posed by bishops of the Catholic Church to our pontiff, Pope Francis. Since that time, in the last five and a half days, I've been contacted by some of the scholars on the letter who joined the four bishops. I'll read to you in a second who they are. And they've asked me, you know, would I join? The answer is yes. And in today's episode of Rules for Retrogrades, I'm going to explain the problem in the Pope's recent, it was June 29th, Desiderio Desideravi, the way it was addressed by the bishops five and a half days ago, and the response from Pope's planners like where Peter is that's been issued in the last 36 hours. My contention is the following. As I've been researching this, between that time and now, it's been a busy period. My contention is that one Peter, uh, I'm sorry, where Peter is, has made the claims of the critics of Pope Francis, more or less charging him with heresy, stick all the more. In particular, one spot in the Where Peter Is article proves, I would say beyond a shadow of any doubt, that there is the reputed substance, the reputed charge, which really lies in fact in the case of Francis. So here's the overview, Parish Orphans and Retrogrades. Very serious show. You're used to sometimes getting a joke show, sometimes a concept show, sometimes a more pop cultural one, or a show that mashes up the pop culture and church culture. This is one of those Rules for Retrogrades episodes, it's about to be anyway, where all we can do is speak solemnly and speak solemnly on the curious case of our pontiff over the last 10 years, almost 10 years. Here is the beginning of the response signed by several signatories plus four bishops. I just want to read you the first passage. The teaching of the Catholic faith on the reception of the Holy Eucharist. The recent apostolic letter, Desiderio Desideravi, given June the 29th, 2022, the feast of Saints Peter and Paul, states the following. The world still does not know it, but everyone is invited to the supper of the wedding of the Lamb. To be admitted to the feast, all that is required, says Francis, is the wedding garment of faith, which comes from the hearing of his word. Let me repeat that. It's the second sentence in Desiderio Desideravi from midsummer this year that is the money shot and that is at least material heresy in fact facially 
to be admitted to the feast, the supper of the wedding of the Lamb, that is. All that is required is the wedding garment of faith, which comes from the hearing of his word. The letter goes on by the critics. The natural meaning of these words is that the only requirement for a Catholic to worthily receive the Holy Eucharist is possession of the virtue of faith by which one believes Christian teaching on the grounds of its being divinely revealed. Faith alone. Moreover, in the apostolic letter as a whole, there is silence on the essential topic of repentance for the worthy reception of the Eucharist. This natural meeting contradicts the faith of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church has always taught that in order to receive the Holy Eucharist worthily and without sin, Catholics must receive the sacramental absolution, if possible, for any mortal sins they have committed and obey all other laws of the Church concerning reception of the Eucharist. However, if a Catholic is unable to confess mortal sins but has a grave reason for receiving the Eucharist, such as a priest who may be required to celebrate Mass at a given time but who is unable to get to confession, such a person must be confident to the best of his ability that he have perfect contrition for any mortal sins that he may have committed. The claim that faith is the only requirement for the worthy reception of the Holy Eucharist was condemned by the Council of Trent as a heresy. They go on to list from the Ecumenical Council of Trent, Decree Concerning the Most Holy Sacrament of the Eucharist, October the 11th, 1551. A lengthy passage that I think gets to the heart of the matter less than the second passage that these bishops and scholars, who I now join, yeah, if I can officially sign, if I can electronically sign. I, I meant to do it five days ago, but I will join this letter. Let's skip this part and go right to pithy, substantial, irrefutable Canon 11 from the same session of the council. This is from uh, one of the first meetings of the second session, which was 51-52. Canon 11. If anyone says that faith alone is sufficient preparation for receiving the sacrament of the Most Holy Eucharist, let him be anathema. Let me reread that. <laughs> if anyone says that faith alone is sufficient preparation for receiving the sacrament of the Most Holy Eucharist, let him be anathema. Let me go back to what Francis asserted in Desiderio Desideravi. Well, let's do side by side. To be admitted to the feast, all that is required is the wedding garment of faith, which comes from the hearing of his word. All that's required is faith. Let me reread Canon 11. And I'm going to tell you why I'm going back and forth so many times. We have got a problem. A hardness of heart that Catholics, I'm not just talking about left Catholics like where Peter is Catholics, I'm talking about faithful Catholics have become hard-hearted and are shutting their eyes and their ears to the fact 
of this side-by-side. Canon 11, if anyone says that faith alone is sufficient preparation for receiving the sacrament of the Most Holy Eucharist, let him be anathema. Now Francis's words in Desiderio Desideravi, to be admitted to the feast, all that is required is the wedding garment of faith, which comes from the hearing of his word. Do you realize what he's done? Okay. I, I could go back and forth ten more times, and still the Pope's splainers are going to lie about what this means. Canon 11, one of the first sessions of the second, one of the first meetings of the second session, October the 11th, 1551, Canon 11, back to back, with this one line from Desiderio Desideravi. Francis has already committed himself firmly, Perishovans and Retrogrades, to the position that all uh, a person needs is not penitence or, or even imperfect contrition to receive the Eucharist. But all he needs to do is to present himself under the auspices of the faith. Where did he say that? He said that in Amoris Laetitia. The Eucharist is not a prize for the perfect. He combated the holy Catholic teaching on the reception of the Eucharist, which is irreformable teaching, that you have to be in a state of grace to receive it. And he said that against this, the Eucharist is not a prize for the perfect. The famous footnote in chapter 8 of Amoris Laetitia went out in 2016, giving rise to the dubia, the single greatest bit of evidence of at least material heresy. I guess it would be evidence of more. But, but I'll stick now to saying material heresy is the fact that Francis failed to respond to the dubia, by the way. April of 2016, he says in a footnote that the mortally sinful, non-repentant public adulterers who are divorced and civilly remarried can receive the Eucharist. There is a whole incremental publication of this new sacramental way by Francis, including the two synods in the run up to Amoris Laetitia's publication, all the Pope's planners are saying he's not going to do it. He's not going to do it. I have a very dear friend who, I at the time, he's saying he's never going to do it. And then out comes Amoris Laetitia. I remember speaking on the phone that night. He did it. And he said, well, he didn't say which sacraments. There are only two that are repeated. And confession would do the trick. So there's only one sacrament that he could be talking about. Well, six months later, that pseudo-vagary, it seems vague, but it's really not. It's actually clear which sacrament he was giving to the mortally sinful in Amoris Laetitia. Well, six months later, the Buenos Aires bishops come out and they say, this is what you meant, right? Give the Eucharist to the mortally sinful who have not yet repented? And he said, correct. That's the only interpretation of it. I'm sticking this into the Ache Apostolic Sedis. And it's a done deal. So we are, so this Desiderio Desideravi makes perfect sense. Now, the lying, I say lying, my friends, because this is not 2013 or 2014. 
the lying Pope splainers say you're just cherry picking a line. No. If anyone is cherry picking a line, it is a defender of Francis who says that this is not at least material heresy. This line in Desiderio Desideravi, it escaped my attention in midsummer when this came out on the feast of Peter and Paul, allegedly the day, according to Malachi Martin, in which the satanic enthronement happened was, was June 29th. This was an anniversary of an unholy event, according to Malachi Martin. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But it was on June the 29th that he doubled down, tripled down, whatever this is, quadrupled down on the central act of his pontificate, which is to say that the mortally sinful can receive the Eucharist. That defines Francis's pontificate. And he said, to be admitted to the feast, all that is required is the vet wedding garment of faith, faith alone, which comes from the hearing of his word. Canon 11 from the Council of Trent says, if anyone says that faith alone is sufficient preparation for receiving the sacrament of most holy Eucharist, let him be anathema. That is all but a done deal. Now, here are the signatories. Most Reverend Joseph Strickland, Bishop of Tyler. Most Reverend Athanasius Schneider, Auxiliary Bishop of Astana, Kazakhstan. Most Reverend Bishop Robert Mutzertz, Auxiliary Bishop of the Netherlands. Most Reverend Rene Henry Gracida, Bishop Emeritus of Corpus Christi. I know three of these. I don't know the, uh, the Netherlands Episcopal Signatory. But lots of my friends and well-wishers and, and cohorts have signed this thing. Dr. Michael Cirilla has signed it. Uh, I love Dr. Cirilla. Eric Sammons has signed it. Many more. Now, the case will, is about to get stronger. Here's why it's best to have people in the front. The Marines go in first, right? The enemy absorbs the blow by the Marines, the first pulse. And the enemy counterpunches. Well, now I'm mixing metaphors. I, I, I know more about boxing than I do about actual war games. But the enemy will counterstrike. The boxer who gets punched will counterpunch. I am now responding to the counterpunch with a counter-counterpunch. The enemy, the liars who Pope's blame for too long now, nearly 10 years, we have used a euphemism to describe lying, to defend that which will bring these little ones away from the faith. We call it Pope's planning. It's too nice a term. It is lying. Listen to what where Peter is says. There's one line I'm, I'm trying to get to, but I want to give you the context. Throughout his papacy, traditionalist critics of Pope Francis have accused him of sowing confusion among the faithful or even teaching heresy. Perhaps most famously, in 2016, four cardinals submitted five dubia, questions seeking clarification regarding Francis's apostolic exhortation to Morse Laetitia. Full stop for a second. That is the greatest evidence, my friends, of Francis's bad will. He ignored 
the five clear questions of clarification. He ignored them. The questions of clarification were utterly themselves clear. The topics that they interrogated were intentionally utterly unclear. Every single human being right now who knows what I'm talking about, who's listening, understands the substance of what I'm saying. Every one of you. I've never said that before. The dubia were submitted in response to the most intentionally vague line of magisterium in the history of Christendom. That footnote in chapter 8 of Amoris Laetitia. It was only vague for about six months. And I've called it only pseudo-vague because, of course, there's only one of the seven sacraments that possibly, by elimination, he could have been referring to, that, that the unrepentant, mortally sinful could receive. It was the Eucharist. But he made it clear in October of 2016 when he told all the world by publishing a private letter from the Buenos Aires bishops, you have the only correct interpretation. I, Francis, am giving permission in a subsidiary way for bishops to give Eucharist to mortal, mortally sinful sinners who have not gone to confession. So the dubious submitted were perfectly clear and would have flushed out the mole. Francis was not about to allow that. So he ignored them. I'll continue with the where Peter is response to the September 16th letter by Pope Francis critics. Escalating these challenges to Francis's authority on September the 16th, five and a half days ago, a letter seeming to formally accuse Pope Francis of heresy was issued by a group of Francis critics led by Bishop Joseph Strickland of Tyler. Closest thing I've ever had to an Episcopal father, even though I don't live in Tyler. He offered me a job when I got fired. Sight unseen. This is a good, holy man, not a blabbermouth. He does not rush into the fray like a fool. He's a peaceable, holy man. His, his holiness is evident. Including Rene Henry Gracida, Bishop Emeritus of Corpus Christi, Texas, Auxiliary Bishop Robert Mutzertz of the Netherlands, and Auxiliary Bishop Athanasius Schneider of Astana, Kazakhstan, another self-evidently holy man, as well as a number of scholars. The letter focuses specifically on Francis Francis's teaching on the reception of communion, and in particular in a passage in his recent apostolic letter, Desiderio Desideravi. Now, this author says, I want, I will leave it to canon lawyers to discuss the formal status of the letter's accusations. It does not require a canon lawyer. I, let me tell you guys something about canon law. It's an important function in the church. It's a very basic function in the church. Canon law is considered very easy. So like when you study at a pontifical school and they have a canon law program, boom. This is a, a degree with usually high grades. Um, I was taking in Italy a Latin course and they're like, oh, it's, it's for the English canon lawyers. The only Latin course offered in English for me, so I didn't have to take Latin and Italian, was with Irish and English canon lawyers. And everyone, regard not me, 
not me, but everyone else regards this among theology faculty, philosophy fa faculty, logic, mathematics. This is canon law. This is, this is straightforward stuff. Important, but simple. Straightforward. Okay, we do not, canon, lawy, uh, canon lawyering degree is not, it's a very important, but it is not what a lot of the viewers think it is. It's not as rigorous. There is no bar exam. It is not as rigorous as people associate with the rigors of secular law school. It's very important, but it does not require some magical spellbinding on the part of its students in terms of their training. Some of the brightest minds go there, but they're not necessarily being challenged. This is, you don't have to shepherdize law which is the hard thing about secular law. You have to shepherdize. The lawyers out there will know. Canon law, black letter law is black letter law. It doesn't, aside from minor changes in the code of canon law, you don't have to shepherdize day in, day out. That's the main challenge in practicing law, okay? I'm not beating up on canon lawyers. I consider doing this since I have a secular law degree. It's very important. I'm just saying when this author this Pope-splaining author says, I'll leave it to canon lawyers to discuss the formal status of the letter's accusations. We do not need any kind of expertise in order to make the clear declaration that Canon 11 from the Council of Trent's second session, if anyone says that faith alone is sufficient preparation for receiving the Eucharist, let him be anathema. We don't need some sort of abstruse, abstract connection of the, the, fa the law to the facts. Because Francis said that faith alone is sufficient preparation for receiving something that, that looks to be the sacrament of Eucharist. I'm going to show you, I'm going to prove to you that this is heresy, if not of type A, of type B, a more well-known heresy than even the one that the scholars in this letter that I'm seeking to join accuse them of. This is the proof. This is how I am, as I've told you very, very rarely, very seldom on this show, I am 100% certain. The next section in the word, it's a very long article, where Peter is. The next section proves it 100%. Okay? Because I've been very cautious I've pointed out ways that some of the usual trad critiques of some of the Vatican II constitutions were hasty. I've pointed out critiques, even at times, even though I'm, I'm more with them on this one, of hastiness on the part of Francis critics, though usually I'm, I'm considered one of their more vocal uh, participants. I said, don't, don't say heresy yet. This is a slam dunk. Listen, the next section in the Where Peter Is article attempting to defend Pope Francis, like Lionel Hutz, right? A defense from this goofball is an accusation, in fact. The letter writers point to two lines of Desiderio Desideravi as the basis of the accusation of, of heresy. And this is good. He's going to repeat what we already talked about. Here's his quotation of their critic letter. The world still does not know... Oh, sorry, this is, this is the passage from Desiderio Desideravi 
itself. The world still does not know it, but everyone is invited to the supper of the wedding lamb. So the it in the next sentence I'm about to read is the supper of the wedding lamb. To admitted to that feast, supper of the wedding lamb, all that is required is the wedding garment of faith, which comes from the hearing of his word. Faith alone. We are not putting words into the mouth of Francis. And by we, I mean myself or, or the letter writers. The article continues. Here now is what the critic's letter says about this passage. I have not read this yet. The natural meaning of these words is that the only requirement for Catholic to worthily receive the Holy Eucharist is the possession of the virtue of faith. I've read it about six or seven times now. By which one believes Christian teaching on the grounds of its being divinely revealed. Moreover, in the apostolic letter, Desiderio Desideravi, as a whole, there is silence on this essential topic of repentance for sin for the worthy reception of the Eucharist. This natural meaning contradicts the faith of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church has always taught that in order to receive the Holy Eucharist worthily and without sin, Catholics must receive sacramental absolution, if possible, for any mortal sins they may have committed and obey all other laws of the Church concerning reception of the Eucharist. The letter's authors, I'm skipping a little bit, also cite Canon 11 of the same decree. I'm skipping that first part of the Council of Trent uh, that, that, that is cited because I don't think it's as effective. Here's Canon 11 one more time for the eighth time. If anyone says that faith alone is sufficient for the preparation of receiving the Eucharist, the sacrament of the Most Holy Eucharist, let him be anathema. Where Peter is says, the accusation then, is that by allegedly teaching that only the virtue of faith is necessary to receive the Eucharist, Pope Francis has fallen into heresy by denying that Catholics must first be absolved from mortal sins before receiving the sacrament. Luckily, because it's not penitential season, I'm only going to read you one more paragraph from the Where Peter Is article. And this paragraph, my friends, anyone out there, I defy you to challenge this. This paragraph alone will lead, like Lionel Hutz, to the proving of a heresy, either A-type or B-type, in Francis's weaponized ambiguity in this one line of Desiderio Desideravi. It commits one heresy or another, one sola fide or another, and I would not have caught this if not for this goofball who is trying to defend Francis. I defy anyone out there, left, center, or right, to challenge what I'm about to say. And then after I, I, I make my point, I'm going to close with my version of a meta-narrative as to what's happened to the Catholic faithful, how they've been scattered by the many lies of Pope Francis. Over the last two years, the two years before that, and the six years prior to that. Here's that last paragraph, which makes all the difference. I defy anyone to challenge me on this. Anyone. I'll bring them on the show if they present a reasonable enough argument. Okay. As theologian Robert Festigi points out in his recent article about the letter, in the above-cited passage from Desiderio de Sideravi, Pope Francis appeals to the biblical image of the wedding garment, 
which appears in the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew chapter 22, as well as in Revelation chapter 19, where the saints are described as arrayed in wedding garments. So here comes where Peter is this defense of Francis. Here it comes. In the parable of the wedding feast, those who come dressed in the wedding garment are admitted to the wedding feast, while those who, without it, are cast into the darkness outside where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Here's the key sentence. Francis, he says, Francis interprets the wedding feast both eucharistically and eschatologically. Both eucharistically and eschatologically. I'll explain what this means in a second. Both eucharistically and eschatologically. Proposing that the wedding garment, faith, affords admission to both the celebration of the Eucharist and the Eucharist feast of the heavenly kingdom, which is what eschatology means. It means, in this sense, you go to heaven. So you see, he's widening the problem, this guy, and attempting to defend Francis. He's saying, sola fide is necessary to receive the Eucharist, which is one heresy, and he's saying also, sola fide, faith alone, is necessary to get to heaven which is another heresy from the same Council of Trent. Now, it sounds like our author is saying it's not the Eucharistic heresy, it's the eschatological one. It's the soteriological one. You go to heaven by faith alone, not works. Oh, dear. It does, whoops. So Francis finally stepped in it. He's always played games where there is a hook, one implausible but technically feasible hook, by which there's, in the possible universe of meaning, there's one very, very differential diagnosis by which a jurisprude could construct possible meaning. And it's always outlier. It's always completely implausible. But Francis has played this game for nearly 10 years, and it's caught up with him, my friends. He either means, let me read, let me read the defense of his defenders. Francis interprets the wedding feast, faith, both eucharistically and eschatologically, proposing that the wedding garment, faith, affords admission to both the celebration of the Eucharist, that's a a heresy, and the Eucharistic feast of the heavenly kingdom. That's a different heresy, a, a better known one, actually. Comes right from Luther. The letter's accusations, this is, this is a defense? The letter's accusations against Francis, hinge on its claim that when Francis refers to the wedding garment of faith, the quote, now they're throwing the book, they're throwing their words of the critics at the critics, the natural meaning is that the only requirement for a Catholic to worthily receive the Holy Eucharist is possession of the virtue of faith. But this is a remarkably thin claim for such a serious accusation. Excuse me? And he says, indeed, the most natural meaning for Pope Francis's reference to the wedding garment is precisely the usage the church has made of this symbol for centuries as an image for the regeneration or justification brought about by baptism. Okay. So here we have it, folks. I, 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 I hate to be shades of Karl Rove. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You look nothing like Karl Rove. <laughs> He's a douche. But this works when all else fails. You see this? Let me move the, the the. 
Okay, here, I can, I can go like this. The entire defense is of, of where Peter is. This is a 100% certitude, or else I would not open my mouth. They're saying there are two heresies at issue here. There's sola fide, the famous, famous Lutheran one, that's type B. Then there's this other sola fide that the scholars, including Bishop Strickland, accuse Francis of. They, they're saying that Francis is saying only faith, this is Latin, only faith is necessary for a person to get Eucharist. Only faith is necessary for a person to get Eucharist. I read you back to back several times Canon 11, which anathematizes this at the second session of the Council of Trent. Canon 11 anathematizes this. Francis seems strongly to say only faith is what's necessary to get the Eucharist. <laughs> but now, in quote-unquote defense of Francis, where Peter is says, no, 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 no. Do we have a, a thing? Block this out. Block this out. This is not what Francis is saying. Scratch it out. What he's saying is this other heresy. Sol I swear, I'm not being funny now. So it's totally bizarre. This is a clown world, folks. If you don't know this is a clown world by now, then you're not watching. They're saying, the defenders are saying that Francis is saying, no, sola fide, only faith, is necessary to get to heaven. This is like one of Luther's best-known heresies in the whole ball of heresies. This is the proper meaning, the first definition of sola fide. This is called justification. How do you get to heaven, Catholics? Take my Baltimore Catechism class. Faith and works. Not just works, that's Pelagianism. Not just faith, that's Lutheranism. Faith and works. A lot of Protestants think we think it's just works. No, it's faith and works. I am not playing a game with you now. I am not trying to be sardonic. I'm definitely not being sarcastic and I'm not trying to be funny. The entire lengthy where Peter is article, it's lengthy. This thing has three dimensions to it. You could knock out the bird with that. You could, you could <laughs> knock out a human with that thing. They say, no, no, no. Francis is not talking about, uh, you know, an, an accepted invitation or an admission, I should say, to the wedding feast as the Eucharist. He's talking about to heaven. This is worse. And this also is uh, an, anatha an anathematization from the same council, different session. This is first session of Trent. It's the first session because it's the main thing Trent was responding to was Luther's heresies saying sola fide, faith alone is what you need to get to heaven. So the first session dealt with this. It's canon 9. Second session, canon 11, says it's also a heresy to say only faith is necessary to get the Eucharist. Are people in the chat, are they understanding how certain this is? I don't know what Catholic Answers is going to say about this. I don't know what any of the other cadres of Pope Splainers are bothering to say about this. You know what I think they're going to say about it? Here's the direct quote. Do you hear crickets? I think they're going to say about this unanswerable heresy precisely what Francis said about Amoris Laetitia, the dubia. 
I think they're going to be totally silent. Because normally, folks, Francis leaves a little hook, a conceptual sliver, a corpuscle of meaning, a scintilla of possible interpretive light by which he could by which the most charitable interpreter could give the most of all differential diagnoses. Well, technically, he could have meant... Technically, I guess, when he said this or that, technically, Francis could have meant something. Let me read to you what my, my friend, who I like very much, Eric Ibarra, said to this one. This comes also from Amoris Laetitia. He said, no one can be condemned forever because that is not the logic of the Gospels. No one can be condemned forever because that's not the logic of the Gospel. That's a direct quote. And my friend Eric Ibarra, who's just trying to be charitable, said, what did he say? I'm looking for that response. So this is a very sloppy statement, he said. The parameter forever will be taken by rational minds as literally forever. Well, well not. you don't need the adverb literally. Forever has a denotation. Don't go to connotation. Forever means without stop. Thus, it sounds like a complete affirmation of universalism. Yes, it is. But if forever means the indefinite duration of this life, it can be bridged. Bad choice of words. I don't even know what that means. What I do know what it means is what I said. The the, the poll I made, the citation. No one can be condemned forever because that is not the logic of Gospels. When you bridge the gap and you say, look, hold up here. There are two possible interpretations of this line here of, of, of Yates. There are two possible interpretations. Let's, even though the secondary one, the less common one, the more differential one, the more counterintuitive one, seems less likely, it's possible. So the hermeneutic of continuity says, let's assume it's this. Well, if you apply that, I don't even see what Eric's talking about here. I don't see a, a, a second, forever means forever. There's no second interpretation of it. But let's get back to today's show. Desiderio Desideravi literally, literally says, to be admitted to the feast, all that is required is the wedding garment of faith. Whether we're talking about the Feast of the Eucharist, it's heresy anathematized in Canon 11. If he's talking about the Feast of Heaven, the Eucharistic Feast up above, then we're talking about the heresy of Canon 9, anathematized in 9. 100%. Even as dictated by his defender, Francis's defender. So now... So now we have bridged the gap into a third period in the Francis pontificate, folks. We've been here for a couple, I'd say a year and a half, where I've never trusted this guy the whole time. I was trying to write articles and getting them rejected, criticizing Francis, even from like crisis in 1415. Laudato Si, if I remember correctly, crisis, one Peter, someplace that ought to have been accepting them. They're like, this is too soon. Okay, fair enough. I couldn't get stuff in the second year of the pontificate published that was critical of Francis. Okay? So I've been up really early with Francis. I've been later to other feasts. 
to keep the theme of the day alive. I've been later to other feasts, and, and, and you know some of the ones I've been later to. But with, with Francis or with love of the TLM, I was going to it before. Whatever, I, 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 you know, the Vatican II documents are very complex. And some of the minor documents might be worse than the major documents, the constitutions and declarations. Some of the decrees seem to be worse than I thought. So I might have be, might appear like I'm going back and forth on this. It's just because I haven't studied them all in great detail. So that might be one you call me late to the party on. But Francis, I've known early. The second period of the Francis pontificate began way too late. Should have begun at least in 2016, in April, after Amoris Laetitia, but it didn't. The Pope Splainers were still Pope Splaining for another two years, two and a half years, until summer of 2018, when yours truly became someone you were acquainted with. On Taylor Marshall's channel, summer of shame is when most Catholics woke up about Francis. Uh, Taylor woke up then or a little before then. Lots of folks woke up then and just said, whoa, he's bad. He, he, he had some role, some role in knowledge or she and tear or maybe even cover up for Cardinal McCarrick. And to me, that was like, he's already done so much stuff. But whatever. So from 2018's summer of shame, late summer it was, through the next year, the next year and a half, we were doing TNT shows and there's all kinds of stuff going on. People were alive. Um, uh, outfits that were not, had not previously been willing to criticize Francis, like Church Militant and, and many, many others, started criticizing Francis Okay, for about two years. And then sometimes since when I moved here, which was two summers ago, Maybe, maybe, you know, six months after I moved here. There was a reaction to the reaction. And folks, like a pendulum, started coming around to defending Francis again as if all of the criticisms leveled during the first phase of the Francis pontificate, which includes, I think, the most grave justifications for criticizing him, Amoris Laetitia, and the two synods leading to Amoris Laetitia, all the hijinks happening there. They started just undoing phase one critiques of Francis. They started forgetting phase, I'm not naming anyone specific now, but they started forgetting phase two critiques of Francis. And in phase three, a lot of people, I'm not talking about any, I have no one in mind now. In phase three over the last year and a half or so, there's just been a rush to defend Francis again, as if everyone caught amnesia. I don't get it. He has not gotten better or undid any of the hurts, the harms to the faith in phase one or phase two. He's gotten worse, open, more brazen, accelerated. I don't understand human beings. I really don't. Why have so many people returned here in phase three of the Francis pontificate to the Pope-splaining of phase one. It was much more defensible in phase one. Though Phase one lasted too long, like I said. I was up early on that. Who cares? You, you catch some, you drop some balls. Who cares? 
But what I don't get now is after phase two, Summer of Shame and Pachamama. Summer and Shame and Pachamama went together. They're just a year apart, a year and a couple months apart. Summer of 2018, fall of 2019 was Pachamama. The worship of a false god attended by Francis. After all that, instead of laying on the steam, many of the Pope's planners who were finally convinced went back to Pope's planning here in phase three. And uh, let me say that over the last year, I've been a little more silent on Francis, not because things are getting better, but because it simply starts sounding redundant. It seemed in several different ways, at least two different ways, maybe three, that this pontificate was going to be brought to an end or to end. So I was just like, let's do some concept shows about which people can actually affect their own families. Men, take your families back. Get off the porn. Be good leaders. You got to be good, good kings to your wives. That you could do, even if your bishop is uh, a butt philosopher. <laughs> And even if the Pope is preaching heresy, even if. But now we can't deny this. This letter's out there, and I don't understand Pope's planning. At this point here in phase three of the Francis pontificate, year 10, which is about to come to a close, in, in a couple of months, we close out year 10. There is no ground for reasonable doubt that Francis, who six years ago, nearly, neglected to answer dubia and has done everything that we've ever talked about. I have shows called 101 Outrages of Francis, and no one can answer to them. The logic of the Gospels doesn't allow someone to be condemned forever? What? But that, too, people were saying, Eric, Eric seemed to be saying, Eric Ibarra, who I respect and like, was saying, oh, that just means condemned by other people. What? I, I don't get it still. Because people don't condemn forever. Only God condemns forever. And the logic of the Gospels is that someone can be condemned forever. And whether you're talking about being condemned by people or by gods, the logic of the Gospels is that at least one of them is valid. So, sententially, modally, this is a valid proposition and you can't get around it. But whatever, there's some sort of differential diagnosis. Well, Francis finally stepped in it. He's been playing this dangerous game of weaponized ambiguity. And he finally stepped in it. The other construal, the other construction, possible interpretation of his words is another heresy. How often does that happen? That is poetic justice. Isn't that funny? I mean, it's pathetic. If you don't laugh, you cry. But literally, he says... It wasn't that heresy. It was the other heresy. The, more, the better known one. Both were condemned. Whether we're talking canon, canon uh, 11 or canon 9, both were condemned by the Council of Trent. Anathematized. So he's trying to play the game. You get used to doing what you're doing. It's an evil, wicked habit. And it finally caught up with him. He said, To be admitted to the feast, all that is required is the wedding garment of faith. Whether you're talking the feast of heaven or the feast of Eucharist, that is an anathematized heresy. And here's the other part of the Pope's planners. 
they also have been using this is why I'm no longer even charitable to Pope Splaining. I'm done with it. I have no use, and you guys shouldn't either. Be, have any more patience for Pope Splaining. This is the last straw. Vatican II is much more complex. Usually, at least with the major constitutions, you look at the language and the critics, and it turns out the critics are actually sort of fudging a little bit. They're cutting a corner to get to the imputed meaning, which is a whole more complex case. And they're not, they're not really lying, the critics, because they know that there's weaponized ambiguity. But with Francis's statements, particularly this one here, you look at the text and it is inescapable. The meaning gets worse. It gets worse. But the, So one other dodge used by these slippery, sophistical Pope-splainers is they'll say, well, look, we're just lay people. We're just lay people. Leave this to the bishops and the cardinals. Well, by my reckoning, I'll read to you, some cardinals six years ago almost imputed that Francis is knocking on heresy's door with a Morris Laetitia. Cardinals did so. That's their job. And listen to how they are regarded by the Pope Splainers, like this where Peter is one. Four cardinals submitted five dubia or questions seeking clarification regarding Francis's apostolic exhortation. This article calls them traditionalist critics. I don't I don't think Cardinal the late Cardinal Carlo Cafara was a huge traditionalist. He's faithful. I'm not sure the German Cardinal Walter Brandmuller, another one of the Dubia Cardinals, is a huge traditionalist. Cardinal Burke is a moderate traditionalist. I mean, you might call him that, but it's not like he's a rad trad. He's just a, a faithful cardinal who likes the Latin mass. That doesn't really, I don't even know what traditionalism means anymore. Okay, but so this is a, a light slur being thrown at the people who, according to the Pope Splainers themselves, the cardinals, are supposed to be doing the papal corrections. Now we have it similarly, escalating these challenges to Francis's authority on September 16th, a letter seeming to formally accuse Pope Francis of heresy was issued by a group of Francis critics led by four bishops. Well, now the bishops are doing what they're doing. So, here's, here's, there's incrementalism used to lie by Pope Francis. He's been doing it for 10 years almost. And there's incrementalism that's being implemented by his Pope Splainer's army. Here's how. They say, look, lay people, if you think Francis is a heretic, wait for the proper authorities to prove it up, like we say in the law. Wait for them to prove it up. Right? You can't just look at plain text meaning and say, Francis said Socrates is not a man, whereas the faith requires Socrates is a man. It's a pretty clear case of material heresy. But wait for the, the, the experts to take it up. So that's what they always said. 
And now it seems, my friends, this is the distinction. I remember when people jumped on Taylor Marshall's case because he was like, it's definitely material heresy. Is it formal heresy? And he, he was vague. People jumped all over his case. Well, yes, there's the, the, the public crime of heresy, which is juridical in nature. And then there's open, notorious acts of heresy, which submit themselves to natural reason. I get that there's a distinction. And in a brief defense of Taylor Marshall, he was saying, I get that there's a distinction, but it's, it's like a prosthetic equivocal. There's a relationship between a public crime of heresy and what ought to be the juridical pronouncement of heresy. In other words, they, shouldn't, they should be very related, distinguishable in only one way. So if someone clearly commits an open public crime, the way Francis really has been with, with some of these different material heresies, then he ought to be taken to task. Not by you or I, because we're lay people. Remember, which the Pope Slainers pretend to believe. Oh, just let the proper authorities do it. Well, now that, that procedure is underway. And honestly, it's kind of dumb that I'm even saying, well, now, in September of 2022, it began almost six years ago with the dubia, and we just all forgot about it. It's been almost six years since they submitted dubia, which is the proper people, the College of Cardinals, Francis's counselors saying, if you don't clear this up, it's heresy. That's what dubia are, if you don't understand that. If you don't clear this up, this primary construction or, or interpretation, people are going to take it heretically. That's what dubia are and have always been in the Catholic Church. He intentionally refused not to. And that tells the whole tale of the tape. But with regard to this latter heresy about sola fide, again, anyone you know or have heard of that are defending against this on any channel, show them this board. Screenshot this. Screenshot it, folks. It's very simple. Sola fide is a heresy. Whether you're saying only faith is required for the Eucharist, why the critics wrote the letter, or you're saying only faith is required to get to heaven, which is how Francis's defenders defended against the critics. That's no defense. That's a worse heresy than that, maybe, if you quantify them. It's a better known heresy than that. And they're both officially defined, officially anathematized. There is no escape this time. Show them this 30 seconds. Anyone out there. And I'm not shit. And sometimes trads have shaved off a word or two to make to make a, a council or a pope sound worse than he is. I'm not shaving off anything. To be admitted to the feast, all that is required is the wedding garment of faith, which comes from the hearing of his word. Whether you're talking about the feast in heaven or the feast of the Eucharist, it violates the Council of Trent. I don't see how it gets any clearer than this. I'll take questions. Are there any? There are. Um, people are asking about um, the, the debate. You're the debate between Diamond and Cassman was unlike anything I've ever seen in my life. I, I don't know what to say. 
I, I just, I've never seen something like that. People were saying uh, in, in my debate with Trent Horn on feminism that it, it was a shellacking. Um, and this could just be style points, you know, the, 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 you know, that feminism just clearly came away from, from my debate with Trent looking like uh, it just can't be Catholic, which was my position, and that it was a, a strong case. The the Diamond Castman debate was unlike anything I've ever seen because it was the beating of the century. And that doesn't mean that Diamond's claim is true. I don't I don't believe it is. It just means that rhetoric, the marshalling of evidence, the general appearance of the debate was it was the worst beating I've ever seen handed out. And what we Catholics need, see, I'm a philosopher. I debate things like the death penalty. I can debate some of the moral theology and moral philosophy claims Diamond was mentioning. Thomistic action theory. I can debate feminism. But when it comes to ecclesiology, what Catholics need is someone to defend the last 65 years of the church, not 70. Let's not, let's not, Move it up. The last 65 years, the 64 years of the church, which, which is an inclusion of Vatican II, uh, without Pope splaining and without Vatican II splaining, saying, here's the clear text. Clearly, this means this. X means Y. And here's why the last 64 years of the church are defensible, said of a contest, diamond brothers, uh, Father Cicada, whomever they're going to debate. That's what I want to see. Now, the people that typically defend the church tend to be Pope Splainers. So what I want to see is someone that's really well trained in magisterium and ecclesiology, which is not yours truly. I know enough to be dangerous to do shows. I've taught taught church history in a while. Not enough to debate. People say, you know, People think that I come to debates well prepared. It's by preparing well. <laughs> That's why I'm a philo- I'm a Thomistic philosopher. I do not accept debates. I do not know what what Brother Diamond was marshalling was nothing short of extra- an extraordinary grasp of a bunch of facts and figures. I'm not that stuff's not hard to memorize. It just takes takes a while. You want to debate me on Fourteenth Amendment or on Thomistic action theory? even applications of it, Catholic feminism. Yeah, I've spent years, years of my life studying this stuff. But, um, you know, any point in the Nicomachean ethics, I'll debate. But ecclesiology, it needs to be someone that can defend position A or position B. I think the, the middle position that the SSPX tries to maintain, which is Somewhere between the last 64 years uh, must be defensible in spite of some clear errors, years of the magisterium. That's position A. And the last 64 years, because of errors, must have been basically an empty, vacated uh, office. That's position B. That's the set of a contest position. I think what was most clear from the Diamond-Casman debate is that 
you can't, like Mr. Miyagi says, you walk on the left or the right side of the road, you can't walk in the middle, you get the squish just like grape. That's, that's what was shown about, uh, to me anyway, about the SSPX position. And a lot of people were saying that. Oh, I didn't realize that it draws sometimes from position A and sometimes from position B. We need someone that's like, look, the last 64 years are defensible as us Catholics having a real magisterium. This is what I believe in spite of some very clear reversals, death penalty, teachings on Judaism, and the, the salvific nature of, of Judaism, all, a lot of the stuff Diamond was raising, teachings on feminism. We now can have te female teachers in the church, doctors in the church. So this, is, this is expressly forbidden by inerrant scripture. That only changed after Vatican II, right? So my position is the mainstream Catholic one. I accept it as an article of faith that somehow the last 64 years in the Roman Catholic Church has been non-vacated, even through some clear reversals of non-reversible teaching and, and, and errors that must be in some way minor. But I'm not a theologian. I'm a, I'm a Thomistic philosopher. I do not know ecclesiology or magisterium sufficient to answer this question. I'm, I'm accepting position A, and there's a, a, there's a lot of good evidence for it. Some of it I've heard from, from places like reason and theology. Some of it I've heard from Catholic answers. Both of those two places have a strong tendency to Pope-splain, though, which makes me pump the brakes on how much I can trust it. But I have heard good counters, at least some good counters, to some of position B, the Diamond Brothers claims that no, the last 64 years has been basically a vacated seat because you can't have all these errors. And I've heard some arguments marshaled at places like Catholic Answers or Reason and Theology that I'm like, thank you. Thank you. That, that is a good response. But since those two places tend to Pope-splain the last 10 years or tend to splain, feminism splain, the last 64 years, it makes me unsatisfied. I want to emerge from all this. Someone, unlike Kassman, who's not drawing a little bit from position A and a little bit from position B that says I that says A clearly and here's how. Here's the bill of sale. Here's the receipt. Here's how you defend a bimillennial faith. Roman Catholicism, the one true faith, it's lasted over 2,000 years, that was always firmly in across dozens of teaching fields, always consistent. And then starting about 64 or so years ago, you see reversal after reversal after reversal after reversal after reversal after reversal after reversal. Folks, wake up. Someone emerge from all this and say, no, no, yes. Francis is saying either or both sola fides. That is material heresy. But here's why he can, he can put this into an apostolic letter and it's no big deal. And, and respond to someone like Brother Diamond and say, no, no big deal. Don't lie, though. Don't say he wasn't saying that. 
That's not what I mean by position A. I want a hero to emerge, a hero of ecclesiology that can look full-throatedly with a heavy heart and say, no, here's, yeah, this is wrong. This is, that can't really be reversed, but it has something to do with the church in, in minor ways in magisterium can err, as long as it's not ex cathedra, but it can't be habitual error. I think that's part of the way forward. Okay, but the last 64 years has looked like a, looked at least like a lot of habitual error. The answer's there. I accept it as an article of faith. We need a hero to emerge and defend position A. I don't know who that is because you lose credibility if your view on the last 10 years is that Francis is, Francis is a pope like any other. 266 is, is maybe, not, maybe not the you know, traditionalist favorite pope, but he's, he's pretty typical, really. That's a lie. It tastes a lie when you spit it out your mouth, and you know you're lying. So if you're lying about that, you are not the person that can make the claim about, hey, this stuff is deadly serious. You have to be able to say, Desiderio Desideravi has a clear, clear error in it. But it's not a big problem. That's what I want to emerge. Because no, I, I, someone needs to emerge and be able to marshal all the same, with all the same acumen, with all the same satisfying specificity as Brother Diamond. Because that was satisfying to watch. Yeah, that was That, that was, was thorough. <laughs> That was one of the most remarkable things these eyes have ever seen. I'm quoting my friend Joe. That was a spectacle. And I've never seen that. And I watch a lot of debates. I've never seen something like that happen before. It's like if, I don't need analogies. You guys saw it. But it is related to all this because from, that, from the time of that debate, it sparked all these other debates with me and all these text threads and all these DMs. And it opened up a lot of debates, at least for me on my phone here, Francis debates. Because the most compelling stuff that Brother Diamond had, let me generalize for you, was still Francis stuff. Note, you know, the major documents of Vatican II are not bad in the ways they're imputed to be bad. There's always a word added or deleted in the major. Now, he was citing from some minor documents of Vatican II called the decrees that sounded worse. I never looked into all the decrees, like 16 or 17 documents in total. Constitution, declaration, decree. The decrees, unless he's adding a word or subtracting one, sounded worse than I thought they were. When I did all my research over the last two years, I was talking about the constitutions and the more important declarations. So maybe, maybe I just didn't look into that and I need to. Stuff takes time, folks. Okay? But still, a decree is not as important as a constitution from an ecumenical council. So still, the most important, the tip of the spear of what Brother Diamond marshaled in that debate was related to the last 10 years. And I know people will try to say, no, no, it was. That's where he really, on cross X, when he cross X'd Casman, and he really got him. Okay. 
Do you believe, um, okay, here's this line from the Abu Dhabi statement. I think he cited the line from Desiderio Desideravi. He cited uh, the line from Amoris Laetitia that I read earlier. Not even the communion everything. one. He just cited everything. No one can be condemned forever because that's not the logic of the Gospels. What the? F you're you're going to defend that? And like, I look, in, in Kassman's defense, to be fair here, what do you say? Okay. Let me defend that guy. What do you say? Casman had the harder job. So don't, let's not be uncharitable. He got beaten up on, but he had the harder job. What do you say to that? Wait, this is, this is um, the Pope. You can't just say, oh, well, it wasn't. And he didn't really, he, he didn't really say this because it's weak. Well, unless it's an ex-cathedra statement, you can just eschew it as a Catholic. This needs to be cleared up, the magisterium. Because guess what? An ex-cathedra statement is infallible. But you know what? Lower level magisterium statements by popes like this in a, in a magisterial document, no one can be condemned forever because that is not the logic of the Gospels. That, is sti that still requires submission, religious submission of will and intellect. You can't just blow that off even though it's clear error, even though it's clear contradiction of scriptures. So people just start talking about Denzinger or Cardinal Newman. That, that we need a clear architectonic, a clear org chart of Catholic magisterium. Why is this considered like an afterthought? This is our most important weapon against the Protestants. To say, we don't just have scripture. We have scripture and tradition together. They inform the magisterium. The magisterium has these levels. Why are the levels not better understood? It is a joke. It is our biggest weak point, okay? As a basketball coach, I would say this is our biggest weak point. We're trying to run a box in one zone, and we don't have a quick little point to the spear that can, go, that can float. That's our weak point if we're trying to run a box in one zone. Well, our weak point as Catholics, even though we have the one true faith, is we don't know how the hell the magisterium works. There are like three guys that understand how it works. I think Lofton's one of them. He knows a hell of a lot more about it than I do. But it's like, because he's doing serious scholarly research on it. I don't know if it's a dissertation. This shouldn't be a dissertation. This should be something that is laid out in like Baltimore catechism fashion. We just mock the Protestants. Oh, sola scriptura. How does that work? Interpretively. Where's the interpretive authority? How do you not get a million interpretations by a million different people? Well, we have the magisterium. Well, how the hell does the magisterium work? How does it work? Can Francis say something like this or not? Can he say about something as solemn as reception of the Eucharist or as solemn as justification for getting into heaven? Can he, even in a low-level magisterial document, can Pope Francis, I'm asking a literal question now. Can the Pope contradict an anathematized position from an ecumenical council whether it's justification for heaven or justification for the Eucharist, he did one of the two or both. Can a pope do that? And he does it all the time. I, there are literally like dozens of instances of this. Can someone stop that knows? Not me, not, not Catholic philosophers, right? I'm a Thomist philosopher. Marshall's a Thomist philosopher. We don't, literally... There doesn't seem to be anyone that knows. Now, Dr. Cirilla, who signed this letter, is one of the few men I know who I think knows, or at least has a good idea. But the question is, 
Why is this being considered like a background detail? How the magisterium works should be in the freaking catechism. It should be like, here are the levels. Why are these theories? Why are the levels of magisterium theories? By Ott, Denzinger, Newman. Why is this? There has to be a magisterial statement about the levels of magisterium. That's our biggest weakness. And that's what's leading to all this. And it's the real issue with Francis. And it's the real issue with some of the ambiguities of the Vatican II, post-Vatican II era. And while I can sit there and watch a debate that's clearly, at least rhetorically and bibliographically, prevailed on by Brother Diamond, I'm like, well, I don't know. This is like a dissertation I have to do in a whole different field that I haven't studied, ecclesiology, just to know this basic question of the faith that guess who's flushing it all out? Francis. Right? So, uh, Benedict Option. What's his name? Rod Dreher. When did he leave the faith? I forget. Was it during Francis? Steve Skojic left the faith last summer, maybe last spring. Um, or another friend, I'm just going through all the people that have left the faith. Who's, who's the guy that wrote the, the book that comes on? The um, oh, um, same-sex attracted individual. Left the faith. That's on Francis, friends. That's not on... I sincerely believe... That that's the stumbling block stuff. Francis has to answer for all of it. Pray for Steve Skojic. Pray for Dreyer to come back to the faith. Joseph, Joseph, uh, Chambra. Chambra. Pray for Joseph Chambra. Look, these are good men, right? These are good men who are, who are trying, that were driven from the faith by Francis. Now, they have some culpability in allowing themselves to be driven, but what in the hell, Parish Orphans of Retrogrades, do you think, what in the hell do you think the meaning of the stumbling block passage given directly by our Lord in the Gospels means, if not that? Woe to Francis. He drove those guys out. Ask them yourself. Can you please just address, um, some people were mentioning the scandal of that debate. By the way, people are asking where the debate is. This was a debate between Cassman and uh, uh, Brother Diamond on Pints with Aquinas, Pints with Aquinas, Matt Frad's channel. This happened like four days ago. Will you please address the scandal people are saying? Now, having debates is not a scandal. Yeah, I find it very odd. Uh, this is another thing I was talking about with my buddy Joe. I find it very odd that... Matt, you know, t that people are calling this scandalous, that Matt Frad allowed a debate between Sedevacontists who are far less removed from the one true faith, assuming our point of view is correct, than, say, I don't know, the Protestant uh, grandchildren of heretics, Protestants. And Frad can have Protestants debate all day long. I think he's had Muslim debates further removed from the one true faith than Protestants. And he can, and, you know, uh, you know, one of the other debate participant is, is SSPX, 
that, that seems to have been obscured by the church, uh, whether and the degree to which there's a separation with the church. The church purposely won't say what the status of SSPX is. I don't really care, but it, it's much less clear. And Sedevacontists are, you know, if there's degree of separation, there's the least with SSPX, more with Sedevacontists, a little more, a bit more with uh, Protestants, more with Muslims who are monotheists, more with the polytheists. So can you have a debate with those further away brethren? Yeah, no one calls that scandal. If you debate a Buddhist or a Hindu, they're polytheists. No one calls it scandal if you debate a Jew or a Muslim who are fellow monotheists, but don't have the correct monotheism, don't acknowledge the Trinity. Can you have a debate with the Protestant who acknowledge the Trinity, but get basically everything else wrong? The, the Trinity and Scripture, yeah. But they don't have sacraments, don't have bishops, don't have church. Yeah, you can have that debate. No one's calling that scandalous. Can you have a debate on the other side? Very, very close. If, if removed at all, can you have a debate between a, a Catholic guy and an SSPX guy? Yeah, no one calls that scandalous. But for some reason, and I don't want to say too much here, but for some reason that, that second position, I showed further away positions and a closer position to Catholicism, the Sedes, everyone starts calling it scandalous and they're afraid. And this makes me look twice and it, that makes me uncomfortable that everyone gets afraid. It's like everyone's allowing the sedes to appear, to talk as, to be, to fill the shoes of the big boys on the block. And that gives me a feeling of dread in my stomach. Not, not the debate itself, but the fact that everybody's afraid of debates with sedes, saying they should be censored. Protestants and Muslims shouldn't, SSPX shouldn't, but sedes should. That makes it look, I'm not saying that this is the truth, it gives it the false light, the false appearance making them look like they're right and we're afraid of them. So don't say that. Don't say that. Unless you're willing to be consistent and say debating is from the devil or something stupid. Debates with Protestants are scandalous or debates with SSPX or debates with Orthodox. Eastern Orthodox are scandalous. Don't say that. Truth cannot contradict truth, says Thomas Aquinas. And debates are not always the perfect apparatus by which truth is flushed out, but they're, they're, they're a blunt mechanism for flushing out truth. The truth that I think came from that debate is, okay, I'm, I'm not taking a position on the canonical status of SSPX. Francis says they're schismatics. Oh, the last couple popes have said that, but they refuse to treat them like schismatics, so I don't know. But what, what I do know, what I've always felt confident in, that's why I don't talk much about SSPX. What I've always felt confident in is they're borrowing a lot from normie Catholic, position A, on the last 64 years of the church, and they're borrowing from position B, and you can't borrow from both. It's a bimodal distribution, and therefore there's a disjunctive syllogism that must arrive. It's not a both and. So I, I think that's the clearest position that emerged. And, you know, I think, I think the clearest position is a, the last 64 years of the church can have some of these errors and still be non-vacated. That's my view. A needs to go directly up against B. That the last 64 years of ecclesial error mean that it's been vacated. I think that's wrong, but that's the set of a contest view. I think A needs to go against B squarely. 
you either accept Vatican II or you don't. With all its foibles. And it's funky. You know, feminism is near and dear to my heart. Vatican II, essentially the spirit of Vatican II, I named the spirit of feminism in just the last show I did. So, you know it's near and dear to my heart if I say that. There are foibles galore with the implementation of Vatican II, and there are trace elements of the implementation in the documents themselves, even if there aren't outright errors. This must be addressed. You either affirm it all or you deny it all. You can't pick and choose. That's the main takeaway from that debate, which 100.000% of everyone who watched agreed Brother Diamond won. I, you know I'm not a bandwagon hopper. Sometimes I say things that you guys are like, that's not a popular position. In this one, I'm with the majority. Any other questions? Well, just some people are asking for um, words of hope <laughs> and encouragement. The words of, of hope are this. I've told you consistently, live with the discomfort. Live with the discomfort. Take it from a hypochondriac, okay? If I go and get a blood test, you can ask Steph here. I'm like, look, I can't take the blood test until I can rig up a way, a blood processing lab, a doctor I'm kind of friends with. I can't go take the blood test until I, or this is what I used to say when I was really abogondriacal, until I can get the, I figure out a way to rig it up where I get the result in that day so I don't have to live with the discomfort because I get freaked out ever since Abby was born. I don't want to live with that discomfort. Life as a pilgrim in a pilgrim church means we're religious travelers. We're just passing through. Learn to live with that discomfort in your side. What does St. Paul say? Please remove the thorn in my flesh. Please take... I've, one of the things I've been, I've been dragical about in years past is bad stomach pain. Please remove this. The Lord denied, refrained from removing... The stomach pain three times. Paul, you still have to run your race. You still have to get in a little more than a skiff, cross the Mediterranean or whatever it is, the Aegean Sea, and go do what you have to do, and I'm not going to remove the pain. For me, the pain's usually mental, and for you guys, it's mental and spiritual. Remove the pain. Make stuff clear. For whatever reason, for the last 64 years, we are asked by our Lord, the one true God, we have the one true faith, to live with some of this doubt, to live with the epistemic uncertainty about the means. That Do not confuse that with epistemic certainty about the end. We have that. The means seems to have been obscured. The church has, you, you can't deny it, the discomfort, the thorn in the flesh that we keep wanting removed. In dubia, we're asking the Lord. The dubia, or anytime we ask the Lord, will you please remove this weird epistemic uncertainty that the church has brought about in the last 64 years? Why are, why for nearly 2,000 years was the church fast on women can't teach, women aren't permitted to hold authority over men, women can't be deacons, women can't be doctors, that means teachers, and now suddenly you're reversing? That's very uncomfortable for a person of the mind, like me or, or probably you. The Lord is saying what he said to Paul. Run your race anyway. I will grow. You will diminish. Just keep being obedient. That's what the whole slogan of this show is. 
the bold yet obedient. You get it? Doesn't mean lie like the Pope explainers. They're liars. I, I'm sorry, I just have to say it. Or they're lying about that element of things. Whoever they are, I'm not naming any. But if you're Pope explaining, you're lying at this point. I'm not, that's not obedience. Obedience and compliance are different things, friends. You have to do what you have to do, and you don't have to do what you don't have to do. Be bold, yet obedient. That means you'll live with the pain. The Lord grows, we diminish. Take it to prayer. Unite yourself. If you suffer because of Francis, join the club. He's an evil prelate. There are evil prelates. We're told that in the Council of Trent. He's one of them. I say the most evil prelate that's ever sat in the Petrine throne. I think, I think that's pretty clear. We must endure him. It doesn't just mean he's an anti-pope because he's the worst. It doesn't mean that. QED? No QEDs. That'll be decided by the cardinals after he's pope. Maybe not even in, in our generation that any of us will be alive for. You don't know. So now you be bold yet obedient. Assume Francis is the pope. Okay? Assume until something is said about the other perceived errors of the last 64 years, reversals on non-reversible stuff. Assume that at some point, probably at the end of our lives or maybe even after our lives, they'll be worked out. Just keep doing what you know you have to do. The basics of the daily faith are that. They're basic. Stick to those. Pray every day. Fast a couple times a week. Cling to your rosary. Be good to your wives and kids. Wives, be good to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Parents, love your children. Well, in a hundred years, all of us will be dead. So hold, hug your children hard. Love your wives. Wives, love your husbands. Serve your husbands. Husbands, defend and love your wives. Don't spend time with people that cause you to fall away from the faith. Men, don't be these guys that spend too much time with the boys. Have fun. Cherish your wives and your kids. Don't just pray with your kids. Play with your kids. Let them stay up late occasionally and do whatever you and your wife do. Watch TV. Play video games. Pray with them. Then play with them. Go to church. Even if that means you have to go to a Nova Zordo. Go to Latin Mass if you can, but that's not the central issue. That's, a, that's an important ancillary issue. It's a symptom. That's not the cause. The mystery of the Sith, as I like to call it, the mystery of the last 64 years in the church will be solved, but probably not by us. If any of you has a great idea how to solve the last 64 years without Pope explaining, I want to hear it. But... I haven't heard it yet. I, I hear some good answers, but a lot of Pope's planning as well. The perfect needle threading has not yet happened, but it doesn't have to. Men lead your families to holiness, and we will get through it. God bless you all. Deus Volt.
Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb.